Good morning, church. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any more news to share with you at this point about meeting together in person. That is the goal. That's what I'm moving towards. That's what I'm, I'm working on. Um, I, would, I would still point you to the virtue of patience and ask that you consider long-suffering as a fruit of the Spirit, which Galatians says that it is, um, and that's a fruit that the Lord is developing in us during this time. I, I don't think that I need to remind you that, um, that watching church on a screen really isn't church. We are made for fellowship. Uh, we're made for community. And, and church is meant to be visceral, not merely virtual. So I'll, I'll remind you again that, that in this time you really need to be finding someone to have church with uh, at home, at their home, at your home. Um, fellowship as you are able. And I understand that some of you are not, and we understand that, but uh, most of you are uh, fellowshipping, fellowshipping with someone, uh, a friend or a neighbor. Um, continue that. And as you are able and comfortable with extending your uh, your circle, then do so. And, and develop also the, the virtue of hospitality during this time. Um, it's not good for anyone to be alone. And while, while watching church on a screen, is a, a poor imitation of church. Having church with someone else in your home is not only real, it's, it's biblical. It has 2,000 years of, of precedent in the church. Home church is not less than church. So please, please, please make use of this time by developing fellowship with your, your neighbors and those who you are, are fellowshipping with so, so that we can maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, God is working in you. Uh, he has never stopped working in you. I'm confident of that. And we actually see that in our chapter in John this morning. Uh, but there's also work for you to do. Uh, one of the small, simple things for you to do is, is to make this time fruitful by praying with others. You know, praying with someone else is not something that you can do just by clicking play on a YouTube video uh, or a Facebook video. So, um, you know, before the sermon is posted on, on Sunday mornings, I'd ask that you would... Uh, reach out and, and please get on your phone and pray with someone in your church. The, the people that you'd normally sit next to that I would ask you to, to pray with um, on a normal Sunday morning or after this sermon. Uh, use that time to reach out to, to hear the prayer requests of, of your neighbors and your family that, um, that you know of. I'd, I'd love to hear about how, about how that goes for you. Uh, feel free to, to let me know. Um, but for now, we'll, we'll go to John chapter 5, and uh, I'll ask the Lord's blessing on our, on our time studying that. Jesus, we ask that, um, that you would use the teaching of your word now, in this format that we're using for now, that you would use it to, to build your church up, and to strengthen us in the inward places. Um, I pray that your spirit would be present with every heart, with every ear that hears your word, that as faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that, that as your word in John chapter 5 is taught, that our faith would increase, that, that John's purpose in writing this gospel, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that that would be fulfilled. So give me words to speak. Uh, give our church receptive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a little bit of review here. In the, in the first part of John chapter 5, we saw that Jesus... Uh, he healed a man um, that, that was a, a paralytic and had his, his eyes set on other things, right? And, and the most important thing about a miracle is always uh, what day of the week it occurred on. 
wrong. No, that's that's not true. Of course not. But the the most important part of the the sign was that the man was healed and he was brought in, uh, into fellowship with God and was called out of his legalistic and worldly culture and ended up being an evangelist for Jesus. That's awesome. That's salvation. But um, one of the things that's so clear uh, about the world Jesus was living in is that they didn't know important things when they saw important things. That, that's how they missed him, of course. The things that they should uh, have seen as important uh, were just overlooked. Um, issues that were secondary at best were elevated and, and took over center stage uh, from the things that should have been important. So one of these secondary issues that Jesus was being always being attacked over was his treatment of the Sabbath. Okay, it was more important to the Jews of Jesus' day about uh, that the healing happened on a Sabbath than the fact that there was even a healing. And when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five, it was it was a Saturday, and that caused problems. Uh, the the Jewish leaders questioned the healed man, and his defense was good. The the man who healed me said, "Get up." His his authority was higher than their authority. He answered to a law that was higher than the laws that the Pharisees presented to him. Um, and the, the man goes and tells the Jewish leaders, that, "Hey, it was Jesus. Look, it was Jesus. He becomes an evangelist." Uh, some people read that passage like the man is a snitch, like he's tattling on Jesus. I, I don't think the want to think the worst of this man. Uh, I don't think um, that would be an obvious reading. If you're going to go tell people about what Jesus has done, uh, let's look at it like Paul. You know, for whatever reason, if Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. So this this man's message about Jesus it, it did make things difficult for him, and that's where we come into the story in uh, John chapter five, verse sixteen. Um, so I'll read this to you. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but whatever he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. But as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Alright, so that's, that's the section that we're going to be studying today. Back in verse 16 it says, This is the reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he did these things on the Sabbath. Just let that sink in for a second. You know, we read a lot of, of, a lot of different motives um, of, for the, the enemies of Jesus, you know, uh, leading up to the crucifixion. And, and one of them is given in verse 18 that might make more sense to us. He made himself equal with God, so they wanted to kill him. But it says right here that they wanted to kill him. They actually didn't just want to kill him, they sought to kill him. They put plans in place to kill Jesus because he broke the law of the Sabbath, the law that they made, the laws of man. Now, a couple weeks back, we talked about faith and how signs and wonders certainly don't guarantee faith. The nation of Israel coming out of Egypt saw more signs than anyone uh, ever, and they still didn't have faith to enter the promised land. Now, here in chapter 5, we have another example of, of miracles being insufficient 
to create faith. The Jewish leaders obviously noticed that a lame man had, be, had been given the power to walk. They saw that a miracle had been done. They knew that a legitimate healing had happened. They didn't question whether the man was healed or not. He was walking, and before he hadn't been. That, but, but none of that mattered at all. The healing didn't matter. The rules mattered. And John points out right here that the reason the Jews wanted to kill Jesus was because of how he treated the Sabbath. And for the rest of the chapter, we have a sermon that Jesus preaches, and we'll, we'll take that slow. Um, we'll take it in, in pieces over the next couple weeks. And Jesus preaches about the underlying spiritual realities of this issue. Now, he doesn't really talk about the Sabbath in his response to the Jews. Why? Because that's never been the real issue. The issue was the heart's inclination towards the Father. The Jews would claim that their legalism was a result of their devotion to God. And Jesus says, that's simply not true. And he even says that that's simply not the way devotion works. Now, this is always a good thing uh, for us to to look at and see as an as a opportunity to examine ourselves. This is important. Now, obviously, we follow rules. The Bible directs us towards certain behaviors and virtues and commands us to shun and avoid sins and vices. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. And hopefully, you know, the pursuit of righteousness and the uh, avoidance of evil, you know, that should not be confused with legalism. You can't call righteousness legalism. Uh, but when, when asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus says that it is a total, complete, overarching love of God from every part of your being. And as people who all live under a certain code of ethics, hopefully a biblical Christian one, you keep some rules. And, and here's the question. This is the self-examination part. Why? Why do you do that? I mean, you probably don't have issues with the Sabbath like the Jews did, but, but you have other rules, and I'll bet most of them are really good. But why? Why do you do it? Why do you behave the way you do? Why do you teach your children certain behaviors? You know, you know, the big rule that rules all the other rules is love. Love for God. And when your code of ethics is separated from that, then virtue is removed, uh, excuse me, when virtue is removed from worship, you end up with this kind of sour legalism that Jesus is faced with. Jesus is confronting a people who have laws about love. People uh, are, are making allegations against Jesus right now, but the problem is with their allegiance. And, and of course, it's no surprise that they didn't have an allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth, this renegade rabbi, but Jesus is going to introduce them to his dad and, and show them that they don't have an allegiance to the God of Israel either. So in, in verse 17, it says, But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Okay, first off, uh, Jesus doesn't deny that he worked on the Sabbath. He doesn't deny it. He does not deny that he has broken their law. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he'll get into this and point out that their rules about work are really a stretch, um, both uh, logically and practically. Certainly theologically. He says this was never the intention of the Sabbath. So, so there's God's law, but he says even the laws that you have made, um, they, do, they just don't, uh, they don't work logically or practically. He'll ask, who among you, if you have a donkey who falls into a ditch, won't help him out, even if it's on the Sabbath? 
So Jesus does, at other times, make the legal arguments and the logical arguments for healing on the Sabbath. But here, that's not the issue. That's not what he talks about. It takes wisdom to know when the right time to argue a point and when the right time is for each point to be argued. Jesus has that wisdom. Most of us have lost it. But here, Jesus does not appeal to law. He does not appeal to reason, it, you know, in just, uh, you know, making a, a syllogism necessarily. And not in the way that connects the Sabbath and healing. Instead, Jesus appeals to divine nature. He appeals to theology and asks them to consider what kind of God they have. Jesus says that he's a God who works. Now, Colossians speaks of Jesus, of God the Son, as the one who holds together all things by the word of his power. And in a way, we see that God did six days of creation and then a day of rest. And in the view of some, you know, he hasn't done a whole lot of work since. But that would be a wrong view. Jesus says that he's been working ever since. And Colossians agrees. There's, there's the work of creation and then the work of maintenance. And God has been doing both ever since the beginning. We are new creations but what he creates, he also sustains. And if you're his project, you can confess, that's work. You know he's been working on you. So Jesus says, my father has been working until now. Meaning, he hasn't stopped working, why should I? And, and it's easy to imagine that the religious Jews would have seen God as, as distant, perhaps. He had already given the commandments, what more could he want with them? Now, now it was their turn to do the work. They were given the laws, and the, the Jews took pride in giving God what he asked for, obedience of the commandments. That's what Paul addresses over and over in his epistles. This idea of God's people still working while undervaluing the work of God, and how that can be a problem. We're saved, not of works. It's God's work, not ours. So Jesus says, my father never stopped working, why should I? Now here's something to remember. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath law, biblically speaking. Nowhere in Leviticus or Deuteronomy do we read no healing on Saturdays. He, he could have argued a different way and said, working? Who's working? I'm not working. This is just healing. It's totally different. But instead, he points out that both he and God the Father, who are most at rest and most at peace, are also always working. And to understand what he means by this, I think the other reference to Sabbath keeping that I already mentioned once will be helpful. I'll read it from Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. It says, Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I think these parallel each other nicely. In John, Jesus says, I am working. In Matthew, he says, it is lawful to do good. Specifically, it is lawful to rescue. What Jesus is saying in John is that the Father has never stopped working. Uh, and you can parallel these passages and see the point he's making is the Father has never stopped saving. He's never stopped rescuing. That Jesus has never stopped seeking out the sheep that has fallen into the pit. To rescue on the Sabbath is not only lawful, but godly. And this idea of God continuing to rescue might have actually been contrary to some of Jewish thought. Their salvation story had been with Moses, the Exodus, crossing the Red Sea. That's when God had saved them. But Jesus is saying, he's still rescuing them. He's still bringing salvation. That there is still a, a need for rescue, and that there is still a kingdom that is coming. So, so take heart. 
God is still working. He is not done. He's not done in our world. He's not done in your life. He's not done with our church. Jesus saves and Jesus is saving. But this isn't the most notable part about what Jesus says in the, in the mind of the Jews. He mentions his father. When he says, my father is working, they know who he's talking about and they do not like it. Verse 18 says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. By referring to God as his father, he made himself equal with God. Now the Jews understood that. Uh, Augustine, in, in commenting on this, this portion of scripture and arguing for the divinity of Christ, this pillar of Christian doctrine, um, you know, a real... Uh, feature of orthodoxy. Every orthodox Christian believes that Jesus is God of very God. He says, Behold, these Jews understood what the Arians do not. Now, the, the Arian heresy uh, was the belief that Jesus was not God. Today, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. Uh, theologically, they're descended from that heresy. But the Jews clearly understood what Jesus was saying. And they clearly do not like it. And what I love is that Jesus, in explaining this, never backpedals. He never uh, excuses himself and says, well, I wasn't really working on the Sabbath. He says, no, 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 I was working. I was doing godly work. I was doing my father's work. And he doesn't backpedal and, and clarify the point and say, oh, no, no, I didn't mean I was anything special. We're all God's children. He, he doesn't sidestep the accusations. He takes them and stands on them and says, I am God's son. And this is what equality within the Godhead looks like. And we're getting into some good deep theology right here. In the following passage, Jesus is going to reveal his equality with God in five ways. He is equal to the Father in work. That's uh, We saw that already in verse 17. We'll see it again in verse 19. He is equal to the Father in love. That's verse 20. He is equal to the Father in power, particularly pertaining to resurrection. We'll see that in verse 21. He is equal to the Father in authority, Verse 22 says that he has the authority to judge. And in verse 23, it says that he is equal to the Father in honor. Both are equally worthy of honor. So verse 19, let's read 19 and 20. It says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. So he's saying that he didn't do anything of his own authority. He only did what his Father was already doing. He, he is still making himself equal with the Father, but he is speaking a truth about the way he submits to his Father's will. And this is particularly relevant to the Sabbath discussion. Jesus is, Jesus is saying... I didn't tell the man to take up his bed and walk because of my own human authority. You don't have an issue with me for healing this man. I healed this man because the healing on this Sabbath day was divine in nature. And I was following what God himself, my father, was doing. If you have an issue with what happened today at the pool of Bethesda, your issue is with God himself. If you have an issue with me, Jesus, you have an issue with God. Now, of course, the, the Trinity and, and the, the union of Jesus and, and, and God being the same and different, distinct, but, but, um, but equal. This is not an easy concept to wrap our heads around. It's not even really a concept that is, that is possible for us to wrap our heads around. 
And that's okay. Uh, it's something that we are to believe and, and that we cherish. It is something that feeds our souls. We are nourished by it. But it's not something that we can explain uh, satisfactorily. It's, it's a mystery. And here, when we try and see the relationship between these two persons who are the same God, the Father and the Son, it's not a simple, clear-cut line. You know, who healed the paralytic? Was it the Father or was it the Son? Uh, we saw that Jesus commanded him to get up. Anyone standing there would have said, Jesus of Nazareth healed that man. And, and, and you know, that's even what the healed man says. But Jesus says that he didn't do it alone. And even goes further and says that he can do nothing alone. Jesus says that the only way the Son can do anything is by seeing the Father do it. And then whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. This is one of those uh, self-imposed limits of God. We read that God cannot lie. He can't. He cannot do evil. And He cannot ever be anything other than Trinity. The Son cannot act independently of the Father. It's a matter of the nature of God. It's who He is. And, and, and I like this part where it says here, whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. So the Father reveals to the Son what he is doing. Jesus is aware of the world uh, of God um, in, in, with more clarity than, than we can see. He, he's aware of what God is working in this world. And then Jesus does what God the Father is doing. How does Jesus know? How does Jesus understand what it is that the Father is doing in the world? He, he, has given, he has been given the Spirit without measure. The Spirit reveals. That's one of his ministries. And as we, we see all the fruit of the Spirit in Jesus' life and believe that Jesus had access to every gift of the Spirit for ministry, it follows that the Spirit who shows us what it is God is doing was also showing Jesus what it is that God is doing. Now, I, I believe this is very important as it pertains to ministry and the Christian life. Your ministry, and just a reminder, you are in ministry. All of you are in ministry. Our purpose in ministry is to involve ourselves in what God is doing in the world. Not just to include Him in our work that we are doing in the world. And I hope this makes sense, because the, the impulse in most of us is to plan our own route to make our own mission, and then we will invite God to bless our thing. Not even Jesus did that. If we see that our thing isn't going very well, then we'll beg and plead to God to bless our thing. But even Jesus, who had all authority to literally do his own thing, he models for us true Christian ministry in this way. We are to become aware of the Father's actions and then do them. Who is God seeking? Then let's seek that person. Who is God intent on loving? Well, then let's go love that person. What is God's will for your family, your place of work, for the town that you live in? These are the questions that ought to play a bigger part in our prayers. And I don't know that we know the answer to these questions. But again, Jesus leads us in the way that we should go. Jesus, who again had the wisdom to do the right thing, spent the early part of his day communing with his father. And maybe it was in that time where he already saw what God was intent on doing that day. Throughout his ministry, Jesus stays sensitive to the will of his Father. And that, that relationship that he describes of a father and a son is what bothers the legalists, but it, what, it, it should be what inspires us. It guides us. 
It, it bothers and offends the people who heard him make himself equal with God. But John has already told us that we have been given the right to be called children of God. To as many as believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God, back in John chapter 1. Now, obviously, we do not make ourselves equal with God. That's not our place. But there is still a privilege of sonship that you should be just as, um, you know, that, that should be just as astounding to you as Jesus' words were to his hearers. We should be surprised. We should marvel at that. You have been adopted as sons and daughters of God himself, and he has invited you not just to receive an inheritance, but to take your part in the family business. He is working in this world. This world is his field, his shop, his workplace, and the church. It's his special project. You are the child that gets to go to work with your father to learn the family trade. Are you watching him? Are you aware of the project that he's working on right now? Do you have insight into what God is doing? Are, and if not, then are, are you paying attention? Are, are your eyes fixed on the, the gardener, on the master craftsman, on your father? Are you paying attention? The, the victory and the success in ministry that we see in Jesus is due in part to his sensitivity and his closeness to the father. And, and of course, it's easy to just say, well, Jesus is God, so of course he did awesome things. But Jesus says to his disciples, who are not God, that they would do greater things than him. And I believe that the success and victory that we have, if we have any, is also going to be the result of our closeness to the Father and our sensitivity to his Spirit and our awareness of what he is already doing. We don't seek equality with God, but we do want godliness. We do pursue godliness. And, and as Jesus uh, said that he is equal with God in work. We want to be godly through the same means, by working his work, <laughs> by, by following in, the, in the, the work that was prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Uh, let's look at verse 20 again. And it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows himself all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. The connection that Jesus had with the Father, that supernatural connection that enabled Jesus to know what the Father was doing, uh, the connection that that um, that that made the Father reveal to the Son his plans, was a connection of love. The ability that Jesus had to see what the Father was doing and then do what the Father was doing was nothing less than love from the Father and to the Father. And last week when we saw the healing, that. Um, that started this chapter, um, I, I made a point to show you that Jesus healed with a command. And, and that's different than what we would think of normally when we think of healing. It's certainly different than what we think of when we think of a command. You know, God is, if God is telling you to do something, we oftentimes think that, that it's, a, it's a chore. You know, thou shalt clean thy room. And, and then it's an inconvenience. And we even get this idea that others' testimonies, you know, when we hear it, you know, right, you, you hear the story about the person who heard God call them away outside their comfort zone, and, and a part of you feels hesitant to hear that kind of call, which is why it's so important to see that the commands of Jesus have healing power, that he gives you wholeness with an order. And, and this is kind of like that, again, what we see in this verse. Jesus says that the Father loves the Son, and that's why and that's how he shows the Son what he's doing. Now consider again the idea of a father bringing a son to work with him, showing him how to hold the tools, showing him the ins and outs of the family business. Is he, is he doing this for efficiency? Probably not. 
Uh, is he doing it because it's the best way to get the job done? Probably not. He's doing it for, for love. And, and now, of course, the, with Jesus and God the Father, we have none of the clumsiness of a, of a toddler in the kitchen. And, you know, but the heart of the relationship remains the same. It's love. And, and as you are also children of God, you have to see that whatever God shows you, he does so for love. The things that he reveals you, the plans that he has for you, the, the calling out, um, you know, that, that, that he'll, he'll call you to out of your comfort zone. These things are, are, these are revelations that are based in affection. The truths that he awakens your mind to, those light bulb moments when you read the scriptures and the tender moments when his mercy touches your heart, the motive behind all of this is love. It's a father's love for his children. The motive of revelation is love. The momentum of the truth of God is love. Now, it has already been said that in John, that the father loves the son. John 3.35, it said the, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And, and that word for love, which I, I believe we mentioned we, when we studied John 3, um, that, was, that was the word agape. Uh, it's that selfless love that does not seek its own. It's, it's the love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. It's the love that God has for the world that inspired him to give his only begotten son. Well, now in, in John 5, uh, that's not the word that's used. When Jesus says the Father loves the Son in John 5 verse 20, he uses the word phileo. Uh, and it's the word more associated with friendship and companionship. It still means love, but it's a love of enjoyment and togetherness. Jesus has equality with God through this powerful love, and we attain to godliness through the same means, because God loves us enough to show us what he's doing. And that love isn't only his sacrifice, it's his friendship, it's his companionship. It's enjoying the presence of God. And let's keep going. Jesus has equality with God in work and, and through love. And then it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is equal to God in power. Bo both the Father and the Son have the ability to raise the dead. This statement is a, is a reminder to his accusers that there are greater things to think about than breaking the Sabbath. They saw their God as the God of the Sabbath. A, a God of restriction. And Jesus says, you know that he can raise the dead, right? <laughs> and it's important that the Jews were more concerned with the letter of the law than the life that the law serves. That's an important thing to know. They didn't care about the healing, right? They cared about what day of the week it was when the healing took place. But Jesus reminds them of, of natural law. Natural law states that after you're done living, uh, you die. In scriptural terms, in biblical terms, we, we read, it is appointed... Uh, man wants to die. And then there's decay, and death, and entropy, and the second law of thermodynamics. Okay, these are laws too. And you know what? God breaks them. He raises the dead. He breaks those laws and raises the dead. This is Jesus' ultimate vindication for healing on the Sabbath. Sabbath represents the planting of a seed. It's dormancy. It's rest. It's quiet. And all of that is good and necessary. It's, it's, it's holy. But healing is a type of resurrection. Death is necessary. Resurrection is divine. Resurrection is God's trump card. And, and Jesus is sure to mark his divinity with resurrection. This is his confession that their accusation is, is, you know, it's right on the money. Just as the Father raises the dead, so I raise whom I will. 
And he says, yeah, yeah, I can, I can raise up the, the sick on a Sabbath because I'm doing the work of my father who even raises the dead. Now that he there, uh, is it the father or the son? It says, just as the father raises the dead, so I raise whom he will. Does Jesus say, just as the father raises the dead, so the son gives life to whom the son wills? Uh, that would be a simple reading of the verse in English. Uh, I'm probably making too big of a deal out of this verse, but uh, we already read that the Son can do nothing apart from the Father. So perhaps a better theological reading is that just as the Father raises the dead, so the Son gives life to the one the Father wills. Um, this is an example of the Son seeing and doing what the Father does. He raises the dead, and guys, we're the dead that he raises. He raises us. The, the promise of the Gospel is that in love, the Father has raised us up with Christ even to heavenly places. He, he gives life to whom he will. This should inspire us to beg him like the leper in Mark chapter 2. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And, and to whom Jesus replies, I am willing, be cleansed. Resurrection is our inheritance. Now with the other equalities, I try to direct your heart towards imitation. Jesus is equal to God in work. He works as the Father works, and we in pursuit of godliness ought to seek out the same work to be about our Father's business. Jesus is equal in love, and we also ought to seek the fellowship of phileo love with God by seeking His truth and His will and His company. Jesus is equal to the Father in power, even over dead things, and gives life to whom He wills. Now, how can we imitate that? Now, surely our first response is, is not to do anything. We're the dead ones. Completely passive, and Christ is the one who gives us life. But when we see that this life-giving work is the ministry that he has called us to, then we begin to see that we have a role to play here. By preaching the gospel to every creature, we are breathing the life of God into the world. And by addressing the cultures we live in with gospel culture, the, the supremacy of God and the orthodoxy of Scripture and the necessity of love, by, by saying this and living it out, we are doing resurrection work. Uh, again, the, the key is finding out where God is working and then getting on board. Now, verse 22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, this is an eye-opening passage for anyone suspecting Jesus of being the softer, toned-down, low-volume version of an Old Testament deity. Uh, you know the idea of, you know, angry God, Old Testament, nice, kind, meek, and mild Jesus in the New Testament. But here we see that the Father doesn't judge, and Jesus most definitely does. It's also very clear that this is absolute. The Father judges no one. It's not that the Father will not judge anyone from here on out. It's that it's, it's just not part of his job. He has delegated that since eternity past to the Son. I mean, that means that the judgment that we see in the Old Testament against the world in Noah's day, against Sodom, against Canaan, these are judgments brought by Jesus. This is in contrast with the, the giving of life. The Son raises up and the Son judges. Again, Jesus is not afraid to claim equality with God. Now, surely this is the job of Jesus and not his followers, right? I mean, we've got that verse memorized, judge not. And it's absolutely true that it is not any believer's job to condemn anyone's, anyone's eternal soul. The Father has given that job to the only begotten Son, and that's not you. But we are also told to judge with righteous judgment. And as those seeking godliness and seeking fellowship with Jesus who is God, we not only want to seek the heart and mind of God and find out what projects He's working on and where our place is in those projects, we also see 
uh, his heart and his mind. We seek his heart and his mind to find what he loves and what he hates, what he wants to raise up and what he wants to cast down. And, and that begins in the examination of our own hearts, of course. But it also must color how we see the world with compassion and with discernment. Now there's one more, and I know this is long, but this is the last verse. Verse 23 says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the gate that's just too narrow for some people. To worship God is to worship Jesus. To honor Jesus is to honor God, and the two are in Separable. Jesus is equal with God. He does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something he needs to steal, or something that he needs to constantly defend. It is who he is, whether people believe him or not. Jesus is equal to God, and he deserves to be worshipped as God himself. He will be honored. He will be worshipped. But Jesus makes this very clear. If you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. And this has been Jesus' point the whole time. If you, have, if you have trouble with what Jesus does, your problem isn't with uh, the, the rabbi. It's not with the carpenter from Nazareth. It's with the creator of the universe. That's what's at stake here. But Jesus makes it clear that the Father and the Son are equal in honor. Now here's your takeaway, your, your marching orders, uh, your mission should you choose to accept it. Seek this Jesus who is equal with God, by worshiping Him with all of your heart. Seek this, this God by learning His heart, loving what He loves and hating what He hates, by, by being about your Father's business, taking part in the resurrection work that He is doing in your home and in your community. This happens when you present the gospel to people, plain and simple. So, so you can do that and know that you're going to work with your dad. Your Heavenly Father is willing to show you His projects. And He has a job for you to do. And in all of this, worship Jesus and give Him honor. So the, I, I would encourage you and advise you, I, I ask you to seek the Lord for His own sake, but also seek the Lord to ask, what is it that you're doing that you would invite me to do? Where are you working in my family? Where are you working in my community? What are you doing in the hearts of the people in our church? And how can I serve you in these projects? That's what we should seek. Lord Jesus, I ask you to bless this church. I pray that you would bring us back together soon. I pray that you would help us grow in love towards each other, in love towards you, uh, that you would help us grow in sensitivity to your spirit, and that you would give us uh, a deep awareness of what it is you're doing in our lives and in our world, so that we can be a part of what you're doing. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.